I'm going to hide this, I think. <laughs> Good morning, family. Today we're reading Mark 13, starting in 24. The heading in my Bible is the coming of the Son of Man. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is God's word. All praise be to God. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that. Um, so that this passage actually is, is one of those where we can carry a lot of tension in our lives, a lot of tension from the world around us. And this passage actually should relax some of that tension. It reminds us of a sovereign God. Um, I, I once made fun of Drew. Well, I not once made fun of Drew. I make fun of Drew a lot. Uh, but... Uh, Drew's a buddy. Drew, Drew's on mission in, in South Asia uh, with his uh, relatively new wife, Hannah. And Drew and I were, were meeting and we're talking one time and he said something. I, I can't remember the context or anything. I just remember the phrase. And he said that this text makes God more robustly sovereign. And I said, Drew, that sounds awesome. But I don't think it means anything. Because sovereign is or sovereign isn't. There are no degrees in sovereignty. Um, I, I remember experiencing that one time when I lived in, in Arizona. Um, we were driving to this place uh, called the Salt River. And um, what you do there is you, you go onto the, uh, the Indian Reservation and you rent inner tubes and they fill them with air and, and they put you on a bus and everybody gets ropes and you tie the inner tubes together and you float, float down together. And um, my buddy and I were, were driving from a, from a base in Arizona, and some police had become interested in, in talking with us. Um, and because of their great interest in talking with us, they were following us with a helicopter. Um, and from the helicopter, they were trying to engage us in conversation on a loudspeaker. And they were apparently saying things like, driver, pull over, those sorts of things. And we didn't hear them because of the music in the uh, and as soon as we got onto the Indian Reservation and we went to get out of the vehicle to get our inner tubes and participate in this day, uh, two uh, tribal police drove up in a golf cart and they said, what are you guys doing? We're like, uh, well, we were going to go tubing today. And they said, oh, here on the reservation. We said, yeah. And they said, oh, okay, great. You guys have a great day. And they waved the helicopter off. This is sovereignty. Right. There's no question. They didn't communicate with the local police and ask that maybe they leave. They told them to go away. And so our God is completely sovereign. There are no degrees. There is nothing that is outside of God's control. That's why we pray. If we didn't believe that God was completely sovereign, we wouldn't pray to him. 
if you didn't think that God could move on your friend's heart and save them and, and make clear to them the gospel, you wouldn't pray to him. You would work harder. You would try to convince them with logic. You would read more books. You would do all of these different things, but we know that our God is sovereign. And so we pray. In passages like this, when they come from a sovereign God, unequivocally talking about the future, saying what he will do, what will happen, are encouraging. And what Jesus said here is not light. If you remember, uh, this is still in the, in the whole conversation of the 13th chapel. He's come out of the, the temple. Um, they're, in the, they're, they're sitting across the valley looking back towards the temple. He's just told them that, hey, you know, no stone is going to be left one on top of the other. Uh, Pastor John dealt very well with how large these stones are, right? It's not like a, a brick building where we're going to topple some bricks over. These are larger than semi-trucks, right? Not one is going to be left standing on top of another. We talked last week about the abomination of desolation when he describes this period of needing to flee to the mountains and not even wanting to have to be slowed down by pregnancy with a baby, describing just the complete terror, right? I mean, think of the vulnerability that's being described there. Can you imagine fleeing from something with a toddler? I can't even get to the car quickly when I had a toddler, right? Everything is slow when you have a toddler. They are irate people designed to slow your life down, right? Like little, little miniature drunken sailors that follow you everywhere and go off, right? And the only people that are allowed to do it. But in these days, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And He will send out the angels to gather His elect from the four corners of the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. To sending out angels to gather all of the believers from every nook and cranny, from every corner of the earth. None, no one will be hidden. People would have us believe that this text has already been fulfilled in AD 70. How would we miss such a thing? <laughs> I mean, you would have thought you would have noticed the whole sun darkening, stars falling, Jesus coming from the sky, angels grabbing believers from everywhere. This is still future. Pastor John and I were even talking this morning about how we say, you know, Jesus, come quickly. We feel like we're in the end times. Everybody's felt like they were in the end times since Jesus ascended. In a sense, we are in the end times. You know, if you, if you think about God's timeline, right? God is timeless. We are bound in time. When you were a kid and, and, and your parents told you, like, if you, like in my house, we just don't tell our children anything, right? That's just like the rule. And if, you, if a child in our home knows about something that's happening in the future, Brianna, I'll look at Brianna or she'll look at me, but did you tell them this? Because they bother you, right? 
hey, we're going to go to uh, Auntie's house next weekend. All you hear in perpetual energy from the time you tell them about the future until that event occurs is like, how long? Are we going to go do this soon? So we just don't tell them. So in a sense for us, as we grow and we get a little older, time doesn't feel like it's so long. Time feels really short as you start to get a little older. You think back on things and, you know, you've seen the, uh, I forget what the commercial was, where you see a kid swinging on a swing and the, you know, the parent is swinging the child. And then, the, then all of a sudden the kid is completely grown and comes swinging back and slams into the parent. As you get older, time feels a little closer. And so Jesus is, is encouraging these people, but he's also giving them a glimpse into the future. And only God can truly give us a glimpse into the future. We've seen that time and time again. Nostradamus, right? You, have to, you bend up everything Nostradamus ever wrote and said, oh, well, here's what he was really saying. Like, really? I mean, I don't think he was saying that. We're so creative when it comes to making true what we want to believe. And so with this text this morning, I want to give, we're actually going to maybe spend about as long as it takes to read this text, studying this text. Because when we understand some things, this text just speaks, and we don't need to really describe very much in it at all. However, for some of us, we'll come to this text with baggage. And by baggage, what I mean is maybe an understanding. Someone has already told us what the end times are to be. So we already believe something, maybe, in our minds. Is it from Scripture? I don't know. You tell me. right? If I was to ask you what your end-time beliefs are, um, and then I was to start to pick at that, could you defend it? Or are you repeating what someone told you? There's a sense in which I do love the study of end times. There's also a sense in which I'm exhausted by the study of end times. And it's not the study of end times itself or the end times that exhaust me. It's people who exhaust me. It's Nicolas Cage who exhausts me. <laughs> and so I, I want to kind of call forward some of the, I would say, maybe um, more popular views of end times, talk a little bit about where I land, and then we'll just read this passage, and I think it makes sense in its own context. Um, so last week, you know, Pastor John did a great job in, in verses 14 through 23. Really easy text. You know, he, I think uh, he's kind of glossed over the top of that with us, and, and that was great. And um, drawing on that same concept, right, if you were to look back at Mark, uh, Mark chapter 13 and verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is talking to them about future things. And we even said, can you imagine how kind of concerning, like in the, in the, in the corner of themselves, they must have felt for several years that Jesus had died and ultimately ascended, and the temple was still there. And they had to kind of be remembering in the backs of their minds, but Jesus said, not even one of these stones is going to stand on top of the other. Maybe they started getting a little stressed as it years and years went on. It's, it's all still there. What, 
Did the other things, did he really understand what he was saying? Did Jesus maybe get a little crazy in the end? Is he a little loose on that day, perhaps? Maybe he was talking in allegory. Maybe by stones, he meant the foundations of people's beliefs would start to be shaken. And maybe they started to get kind of creative and crafty with his words to describe a way that what they were, were getting worried about. And we have to be careful with that as well. The text says what the text says. We don't have to excuse it, hide from it, obscure it. In fact, we read it like we would read almost anything else, just with a greater reverence and knowing that its author is truth. And so when we read the scripture, we need to know what we're reading, right? We need to know if we're reading poetry. We need to know if we're reading an allegorical story. Allegory can be great. Allegories in scripture, but you can't allegorize all of scripture. And so by allegory, I mean like a story that's meant to be drawn upon, where the different representatives in the story represent different things. If the text of scripture doesn't say, well, I said Israel but now I mean church. We don't get to make that leap. That's a very far leap without any kind of textual clues, without anything saying, and now I'm switching my focus here. We have no reason to make those kinds of jumps, and we shouldn't. We should let the text say what the text says, and we should approach it knowing that we can ask all things, that we can, we can ask questions. Everything is in bounds. We can test all things. Scripture encourages us to do that, so we should dive deep to know what does it say. And so Jesus is continuing here to talk about future things. And at the end of the day, we step back and realize that God has a timetable and perfectly accomplishes his will in that timetable. By his grace, he's told us about it. Right? We, should, we should be completely encouraged to read about what has God said of the future. but we still need to be careful with his word. You know, it's, scripture is called an, an accommodation, right? God accommodates us with scripture like I would accommodate a toddler. You remember I said it's like a shrunken, drunken sailor, that little thing. It also hasn't experienced a lot yet. And yes, I'm referring to toddlers as it. Um, it hasn't experienced much yet. And so when it asks me questions, I have a hard time communicating with it answers. Maybe you've experienced this, right? Like, let's say I gave you one and, and you have it, right? And you're holding it. And you say, hey, do you want a graham cracker? Now, here's the thing. If it's never had a graham cracker, it does not know that this is going to be its steady diet for years. In fact, toddlers immediately default to, I don't like that food, right? Maybe, like, that's, that's my house. If we had to make dinner for everybody in my house, there would be like eight dinners. And there's only seven people. Because no one can align on anything. Right? And so if I have to convince this thing that it is going to like the graham cracker, I have to accommodate it. So remember the time that you had a cracker and it was crunchy? It's like that. You remember the time that you had a piece of candy and it was sweet and you liked that? It, it's like a crunchy, sweet thing. And that falls short of the fullness of what they're about to eat and enjoy the wonders of graham cracker. But it gets them close, right? Scripture is an accommodation. It takes otherworldly things like God and it brings it down to me so that I can understand it. And God does that with language. Natural human language. So the rules of language apply. So when I'm reading a poem and God says in, in, the, in the word that he desires to gather Israel like a hen under her wing, 
Do I now recreate my view of God to be Evian? Avian? Sorry, one's water, one's a bird. With wings? No, I'm reading poetry. It's describing affection. And so Martin Luther in 1515 coined a phrase called the grammatical historical hermeneutic. This is the approach by which he described how he understands Scripture. Hermeneutics, so a 25-cent word. At the end of the day, you may have a dollar here. Okay, so hermeneutics is describes the principles and the methods of interpreting the Bible. And so our hermeneutic, the way that we approach the Bible, is our input. Okay, so we're taking Scripture in, we're interpreting it, we're translating it, we're understanding it according to history, according to grammar, Right? So I know where in the world these people were. I knew about what time in the world they are. I know what kinds of language they were using. And so I can begin to understand what God is communicating through this accommodation to these people. I apply a hermeneutic to the text. And so those inputs have measured outputs. The way I understand the scripture, the, what, the hermeneutic that I apply when I think about end times, or the, go back to Genesis, the hermeneutic I apply when I understand the book of Genesis will have outputs later in the story. The way I understand the covenants, the way I understand what God promised to Abraham is going to impact the way that I understand what God is doing with Israel, what God is doing with the church, what God is doing with the tribulation, the millennial reign, the rapture, all of these things are impacted all the way back to the way that I read the book of Genesis. Those inputs matter. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. I don't know how many of you as growing up, you know, maybe you were a part of some bus ministry. That's how Southern Baptist caught me. It was a net when I was a little kid and I was bored. And they had some dude that drove around in a bus. And he was like, hey, you want to shoot stuff? Dude, they had me. I told my mom, I said, hey, I'm going to go shoot stuff with a weird guy in a bus. She was like, cool. See you later. Get out of my house. So I did. I started going to shoot stuff with these weird guys at a Southern Baptist church in South Florida somewhere. And um, if you've ever been in that environment, you know this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as someone approved, a worker not ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. That's, there's responsibility to this. This shouldn't be flippant. We shouldn't just be spoon-fed something from someone and say, that's how I take this on now. And especially in the end times, uh, this is one of those things that I, I kind of, I, I somewhat consider an in-house issue, right? I have uh, plenty of brethren that would helpfully disagree with me and I with they. And I just, it's okay, right? I let them be wrong, right? But these things are important. I want to think about them. I want to be informed from the Scriptures, not from other people. So if I disagree, I don't want to disagree because 
I was raised a premillennial rapturist. I want to disagree because when I read my Bible, I see a premillennial rapture of the church, and I don't need to excuse that away. I don't need to hide from that. I, just because my Presbyterian brothers laugh and say the rapture is funny, I don't care. I want to know what the Scripture says. And let's have a conversation about the Scripture, not about you know, cartoonized pictures of what people believe. And so I hope with me you are encouraged by the future, by the ability that God gives us to see the glimpse of it that he does give us. It should be encouraging. Um, so when you look at the book of Revelation, and I'm not saying turn there, um, but when you look at the book of Revelation and you read it, it's, it's, it's chunked up. Okay, we're now in an age that the book of Revelation and say we're in chapter two and three of Revelation. Okay, that's the good news. We're in Revelation. That's awesome. We're almost through like we're not like in Genesis. Um, All right. But here's the bad news. And this kind of gets to what I teed up earlier about the conversation that uh, Pastor John Nicholas and I had this morning is what if we're in the early days of the church age? (laughs) Like we think we're right there. Right. What if there's a lot more to go? Um. The bad news is, well, not the bad news, but Revelation has 22 chapters. We're in about two and three right now. We're in the church age, this age when uh, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was resurrected, and he leaves behind his church. That's us, that's where we fit right now in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, when you get to chapter four of the book of Revelation, something changes. In chapter four of Revelation... You see the church in heaven. Something happened. Like I, I don't know if you're paying attention right now, but this is not heaven. Uh, we have a tagline on, on, on our church, uh, on the banner on the website. It says, um, in Harrisburg as it is in heaven. And Facebook is a funny place. People are funny on Facebook. Uh, I exist as a troll on Facebook and Twitter and many other places. And so someone trolled us. And they said, if Harrisburg is heaven, I want no part of it. I'm like, dude, I agree. (laughs) We just want to be differentiated, right? We want to live as though we are the kingdom of God on earth, differentiated from the world around us. And people that say Harrisburg is terrible um, are actually probably from Harrisburg. Nobody likes their hometown, right? You just complain about your hometown, wherever you're from. You can say why why where you're from is terrible. Um, It just is. It's just earth. It's life in a fractured, broken world, which all of creation groans under the weight of sin. So something happens when we get to chapter 4. Um, I, would, I would say the rapture has occurred. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Then this rapture of the church begins the real end times. Um, because next we have this tribulation period. So I believe that the the rapture comes before the tribulation. The tribulation is this this seven-year period. You see that in... Well, then then we start to run into a a judgment, which is horrible. Uh, We have a millennial reign where Jesus is on the earth. Church is back. He's in control of things. The devil is captive during this time. Then after this period, the devil is loosed. 
um, and, and it, it gets real bad real fast, but Jesus conquers, and then there's the new creation and the new earth. This is my view. This is my timeline. This is what I see when I read the scriptures. And you can find all of these time periods in the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, when you get to chapter 20 of Revelation, you see the uh, white throne of judgment, the ungodly or judge sent to eternal damnation, and all that are left is God's elect. In Revelation 21, the eternal new heaven and earth are created, and that's what you get when you have a grammatical, historical reading of the book of Revelation, just like you do with the rest of Scripture. We don't change the way we've read all of Scripture when we hit Revelation. We don't have to turn everything into helicopters either, and we don't have to build charts and slot everything into perfect time frames. We know that our God has a timetable. He has generally, in an accommodating way, told us what he is going to do, what is going to happen, what to look out for. He's given us everything we need to know. Now, we should get everything out of this. We want to be approved as workers um, by rightly handling what he has given us, right? We shouldn't hide away from end times. But at the same time, it shouldn't be our everything, right? So every morning I wake up, I pull down Twitter to see what's going on in the world around me. Um, I see a headline. I say, oh, Jesus is going to come back today. They just did this. Or, oh, there was an earthquake in, in India. Like, look, dude, you're going to do that for hundreds or thousands of years maybe. Or maybe another day or another hour. I don't know. And so that uncertainty, that certain uncertainty, we know God's going to do exactly what he said. We know he's going to do it on his timetable. We don't know exactly what that timetable is. No one knows the hour or the day. So we live as though any moment. And I like that, right? He gives me the toddler treatment. Because <laughs> if I told you exactly when, you'd bug me every day. But some of us are bugging him every day. Is it today? I saw that there was an earthquake in Indonesia. It's like, look, dude, there's a lot of earthquakes in Indonesia. Every time there's an earthquake in Indonesia, it doesn't mean Jesus is coming back. I promise you, you are not going to miss Jesus coming back. All right? You are going to notice that. The book of Revelation says in Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what was written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. And so that time is near element of these end times encourages us, like that parable of the, of the virgins and their lamps, right? The whole point of this story was be ready, be prepared. It's coming, right? Don't get lazy. Don't let the oil run out of the lamp, right? Don't just go to the grind of your day and let your whole life be about emails and work. Don't forget to joy in your God with your, your, your fellow believers around you. Be seen all over town doing all kinds of things. Have something to talk about other than the Steelers. If all you have to talk about is the Steelers, that's depressing because they just lose because they're a terrible football team. I love you, Purr. Directed straight at Purr. As we go out in the world, we should be salt and light. We bring truth, but we're also enjoyable to be around, right? Like, I don't know about you, but like, I always joke with my family, how much salt do you put in your ramen? I love salt. I could salt my salt. 
I want more than on my food, whatever it is, right? I could probably, and I don't do this because it seems terrible, um, but I could probably salt my pizza and be okay with it. It is awesome. It's like uh, American MSG, right? We, we wonder about MSG. We're like, why would they put MSG in their food? It's terrible. As we're pouring salt in our ramen. You want more. That's what the church is described as to be. Light, yes, brings truth, yes. In a flavorful, additive, I want more of it kind of a way. Our lives should look like that. That's what preparedness for the end times is like. We've got a kind of an unction in us. We know it's coming. It could come any day. We want to live as people dividing the word rightly. We want to share that with people around us. Right? There's people that you're sitting next to maybe at work or in the car next to. They're going to die not knowing God. Separated him, separated from him forever. And you can't bring him up in casual conversation. Got to get over that. And there's lots of ways that you can, I mean, you, listen, um, you can sprinkle all kinds of things. I used to, when, when I worked in an office, I used to leave my Bible just on my desk. You will be amazed by how many, how many conversations that will open up right there. Because I'm telling you, people are afraid. Um, when, when I was in uh, New Mexico, the woman in the office directly next to me, um, I, ha- I would always just keep my Bible propped on my desk. I had, my boss was awesome. He was a crazier Christian than me. Um, and he did not care. He loved it that the Bible was out. And there was a woman that was in the office right next to me. And at lunchtime, um, I would study my Bible, shut the door, you know, study my Bible, do some cool reading. And then one day my boss, you know, came over to my office. He put me next to him, which now that I think about it, I think he was keeping his eye on me. But um, came over to my office and said, hey, uh, John, so-and-so is, uh, she's, she's home and she's dying. She's like in the last days. And she was a sweetheart of a woman. He said, you want to you go over to your house and see her? I'm like, oh, gosh, yeah, I didn't even, you know. It was one of those things that happened really fast. And so we went to go see her, and she couldn't, you know, she was uncommunicative. If you've ever watched someone as they're kind of dying slowly, you're really just trying to keep their body comfortable, right? You love people and you care about them, and, and you know, you want them to have honor and comfort in their last days. You know, uh, they were, you know, kind of to the point of putting, you know, kind of sponging her mouth so it wouldn't feel terrible, but she was dying. And I remember being so convicted because every day she sat next to me and and every day at lunch, I would go in and I would get smarter with my door shut reading my Bible. There's people that are around us. They're just going to die tomorrow. That's what people do. And that's the most consistent thing that we do is keel over. Um, We hide from it, right? As soon as you die, they come in with spray paint. They put you in the best outfit you've ever worn. (laughs) We, we try to hide it like it's not ugly, but that, I mean, that's, it, it gets worse from there physically. What about spiritually? What's happening with that person? To, for the believer to die is amazing. Um, I mean, I'm afraid of dying. I, I've told you that, like not of what happens after, but the process of dying. Um, for me, I want to die in my sleep. I'm 100% convinced of that. Uh, I just want to like not wake up. Um, I, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to burn. Um, all these awful ways that you can die. I'm not into that. But the moment that you die, Scripture very clearly tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with God. Amazing. Everything is better. Instantaneously. 
all the weird problems. If you're, if you're over 30, if you're over 40, if you're over 50, you start getting the warning lights on the dashboard every time you move. Like, it's so funny. I, 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 Brianna and I almost every morning sit and have coffee together in the living room. And I've noticed increasingly as she comes down, like it takes us like a little bit to be like fully up and normally mobile, right? Like your body just doesn't move right as you come down in the morning, you're all stiff and you're like leaning to one side. And you know, by the time you've had some coffee, you're feeling a little better and the joints loosen up, right? Body winds down. To be absent from the body, to, to die, to pass on, to be instantly present with God. All the problems of this life are gone. Tears are no more. Conflict, nothing. Just God. And why, like, if you were, if you could clearly see that, and you were to do like a pro-con list, it's an obvious choice to repent and believe in Christ. Trust in Him, not trust in yourself anymore. As soon as you see the truth of God, you, you should be the last person you trust. Jeremiah 17.9 makes very clear, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? In fact, you, you may be good at that. I know I'm very good at this. I can, I can make true whatever I want to be true. I can, make, I can justify any decision that I want to make. My heart will just, you know, like Napoleon Dynamite, right? Follow the heart. That's what he does. You can follow him or follow Christ. So passages like this, when God speaks plainly and clearly about the end times, should completely encourage us because God has it all locked up. He's going to make happen everything that he desires to happen. His will is going to be accomplished. There is a very specific timetable to it. When the fullness of the elect come into the church, he will come back in rapture. There will be a tribulation. Then there will be a millennium. And then he will come back and judge all the wicked and ungodly. And at that point, he will recreate the heaven and the earth. So generally, there's about there's, there's uh, 7,000 views in the end times. We will discuss three. <laughs> and of those 7,000 views, there's about 9,000 permutations of each. And nobody agrees. <laughs> um, you've got amillennial view, postmillennial view, and premillennial view. Um, the amillennial view... Well, here, actually, let's do this. Um, let's read something. We're going to read from Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. And uh, Justin, Justin was getting on to me this morning because, oh, he got it loaded up. All right, you're awesome, dude. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, what I want you to pick up on as we're going through this, and, and Jay, I'm going to go all the way back to, to verse 1, and then I'm going to read down through verse 6. Um, listen for the timetable in here. Ask yourself, does it give me any reason to think that this is a figurative timetable? And just, just kind of mention it once and then move on. So, starting again. Then, I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit 
and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who shares the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. I don't know about you, but I see a thousand years there in that text. About six times. No clue that says I should read that any other way than a thousand years. I didn't see the word about. I didn't see the word like. I didn't see any normal clue that I would expect to read and think, this means something other than 1,000 years. And so this thousand-year concept really causes a lot of people to pivot and go a lot of different directions, and sometimes weird directions. We rely on a historical, grammatical hermeneutic. All the way through the scriptures, we read historical, grammatical hermeneutic. And so what's really important for the person who's going to show themselves as an approved worker who rightly handles the word is not to come to something like this and say, does this mean a thousand years? Am I pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill? And then even if I was pre-mill, am I pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, or post-trib rapture? Really a better idea is to read the scripture, study it, and ask, what does the scripture say? And that's our problem. A lot of us have started with a preconception and said, how do I read the scripture that I see that? Or I became an amillennial when I was saved. That was the view that was shared with me. Um, and so I, I really need to learn to defend that. Oh man, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. If you're learning to defend what you've been told is true, you should think twice about that. You should be convicted by the scripture first, not find the proof. To, I mean, in what other part of our life would we do that? Right? Like if I was to come to you and say the inside of watermelons are actually orange until you cut them. And then when the air hits the inside, they become kind of that reddy pink watermelon color. Now, let's study the reasons why that's true. I mean, you would want to say, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Is the burden of truth really on other people to prove that the inside of the watermelon is orange, or would it be on us because our claim is strange? So we should want to be approved from the scriptures, handling it well. So three views, starting with amillennial. Now, I, like I said, we're going to spend about two minutes in this actual text, because once we work through this, I think this text is easy, but we have to get there. So amillennial. Um, amillennials is the understanding that there will not be a literal 
millennial period. Now, what is the millennial period? Um, I would say to you, it's the, the six mentions of the thousand years in Revelation 20 that we just talked about. Um, but this view says that that's not real. Um, it also says those promises. Now, to be fair, I will characterize other people's views that I disagree with. So people would say that you're putting up a straw man argument. Okay, that's fine. Um, somebody would say, I have, I have nuanced views or you didn't present it well. That's fine. Like I said, I'm, I'm cool with people being wrong. Generally speaking, the general course of what the amillennial believes, and they would say it differently than I'm going to say it right now and, and, and try to smooth it out and work through the position a little better. Um, they would say those promises, those covenants that were given to Israel, that God very clearly gave Israel, were negated when Israel, when, when, when the Jews sent Christ to the cross, when they trapped him, sent him to the cross, had him murdered and killed. Those then became realized on the church. All those blessings that were given to Israel are realized in the church. Um, I would call that replacement theology, meaning you're replacing Israel with the church. And now if you're an all-millennial, here's the great news. All the blessings that were offered to Israel transferred to you. Apparently in this view, none of the negative stuff came with it. So curses, problems and issues, those are back there. It's just the good stuff. A little bit inconsistent. And it asks you, in my view, to change the, your hermeneutic, to change the way that you read the scriptures, to satisfy an all-millennial view. To look past all six of those mentions in, in those what, seven or so verses from Revelation 20. So when God made promises to Abraham in a covenant, and if you don't remember that, so think of it like this, that they would take a covenant. And this, this passage has always blown me away, and it, it probably for all the wrong reasons, because it was like, talks about how um, they would do this covenant, right? They'd cut the bird in half, put it on either side, and cut some other animals in half, and then people would walk in between them, and they were basically covenanting together in blood that they were going to do this thing, Right? So God goes to do one of these covenants with Abraham. But what he does is it's a unilateral covenant. God's on both sides, the promise and, um, and, the, um, and the bad side, right? So if it doesn't get fulfilled, that's on him. But he's guaranteeing it on himself. So what does he do? Zonks Abraham, right? Abraham goes into this deep sleep. Now, <laughs> the part I love about this passage is he's got these birds cut, right? He's getting ready for the, for the covenant to happen. And if you've ever read it, the, the, the birds of prey, like the vultures are coming down, right? And he's swatting them away. Always thought that was a weird mention, right? And the cool thing is I don't have a resolution. I still think it's a weird mention, right? Maybe that's how he made them really tired so he could kind of put them to sleep, right? From trying to keep birds away from this thing. But all of those promises that God made to Abraham was to give the people and, and give those people a land um, and, and make them an everlasting people. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there have been a lot of attempts to make the Jewish people not be everlasting. You really don't have to be a careful student of history um, to see a lot of attempts to eradicate Jewishness from this earth. It's strange, frankly. It's strange. Like, And it's not like anti-Semiticism uh, isn't alive and well today. Um, very much alive and well. Yet, for whatever reason, uh, the Jewish people ha have a home in Israel. How did that happen? I would suggest to you it's all part of the Abrahamic covenant. God said it would be so. So I say when things look impossible, like, we don't have to hide from it. If God said, it's going to be. 
Story after story after story in Scripture is to get that firm in our minds. And my favorite example, you know me for more than probably three weeks, you know this. My favorite example is the Exodus. You imagine how terrifying to have babies and children and to be pursued by a national army. You're a ragtag band of people with poorly made bread. And you're sprinting through the wilderness. You're being led by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, which is cool. I'm feeling really confident in that until we get to the water. My faith gets real shaky. And I love this story because I'm telling you, it was for them, but it's for us. Because what happens in that story? They, there's a sea. The entire army are pursuing them. They are going to kill them. These aren't nice people. The sea is opened. They go through unharmed. you imagine how awesome you feel in that moment? It's like having your buddy that's a bully around you when somebody comes to pick on you. John was the bully. He doesn't know what that's like. They go through the water. The, 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 the enemy tries to pursue them, crushed by the sea. If we see that, and we believe that this Bible is real, there should be zero fear in us. Because if that's real, if God can do that, I mean, that's about, like, if you were to say, hey, let's make the most outlandish thing ever to bring attention to it, to show the power of God, that's that's on my top list, right? So if I believe the scripture, if I believe that happened, I'm really not worried. I don't have to describe anything about God away. I'm not concerned with any of the details of my life. If God is for me, who could be against me? And even if someone was against me and they won, all they could do is take my life. And to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with God. No more waking up all slow and crooked, you know, drinking 17 cups of coffee. And so the all-millennial view doesn't see that this millennial period is going to happen, transitions the blessings only, none of the curses, over from Israel to the church, and makes such a huge leap. Because now they've got to, anything that was about Israel, they've got to work it over to the church. We've got to do an unnatural read of Scripture to make the all-millennial view fit everything else that they believe. God made an everlasting covenant. And you can't describe that away with creative theatrical language. Then, in order to describe some of those things away, they, they kind of do some different uh, things with the future kingdom, making it be more spiritual, not a physical earth, those kinds of things. Um, then you've got post-millennium or, or post-mill. Um, these folks would say that there is an increasing peace on earth. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at you like, increasing peace on earth. So the church kind of takes over, right? And when people start seeing it the church's way, things start going better, right? Because that's what Christianity is about, right? Better homes, better education, um, better life, right? Every day is a Friday, those kinds of things. And so when the church really gets hold and everybody finally sees it the church's way, things get better. Now, I'm, I'm like, I can imagine the sound of crickets. I'm looking around me and behind me is projected anything from news, like Google News, whatever's going on in the world. Do you see things getting better? Do you see the church gaining traction and really getting people's attention and them going, huh, you know what? 
I do think that I have sinned and I'm in need of a savior. I think that the way that I see things morally is completely wrong. Um, I think that I need to repent of all of those beliefs, turn to God, see marriage the way that the church sees marriage, see sexuality the way that the church sees sexuality, see the human body the way that God describes the human body, see gender the way that God describes gender in the scriptures. I don't see the world making that turn. I see it going the other way. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I would struggle here. So they would say that we're in the middle of the thousand-year reign now. So we're in the middle of the, well, not necessarily like middle, like located, but meaning like that's the age that we're in is the millennial reign. Jesus is here and he's in charge. I don't feel that way. I don't see any way you could possibly feel like Jesus is completely in charge of the government right now. It doesn't look like Jesus' government to me. My view, as I said earlier, is is a, a premillennial view. I think that's what you get when you take a grammatical historical reading of Scripture and you understand the entire trajectory from Genesis to Revelation. You look at the covenants. You look at what Jesus said. You look at everything that's happened. I think that, that is the view that you get is a premillennialist premillennialist's view. Um, if you look in your concordance. Uh, you will not find premillennial in your Bible. Similarly, you will not find Trinity. These are concepts that we see in the scriptures. We understand them. We put labels on them because it's so much easier than starting with Genesis and describing wh- why, why you believe the way you do. I can just say premillennial so that I can my Presbyterian friends can make fun of me. Look with me, if you will, at Zechariah. Zechariah, well... Wait, hold on one second. Zechariah 12.10. Do you have that, Jay? Is that what's up there? Okay, cool. I don't have my glasses. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When you read something like that, you would ask questions like, well, what's the house of David? Who are the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Uh, When they look on him who they've pierced, and that's probably going to be Jesus there, right? Um, So I just don't see a scenario where this scripture is written, this scripture is true, and then I can jump ahead from this and say God turns his back on his promises to the Israelites because they they pierce Jesus and now gives all that over to the church. And why was this said? I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, I shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. You can't read consistently in the scripture and come out with a view that God changes his perspective on the promises that he gave to national Israel. You can't do it. You can't do it and be consistent with all of scripture. In Luke chapter 1, verses 69 through 76, he got wordy in that chapter, apparently. This is like when you, uh, you know, you do a Bible reading plan. My favorite is McShane. 
McShane has you in two Old Testament, two New Testament at the same time. You're almost always in Proverbs and Psalms, but you're reading like, usually it's like one chapter at a time. And you get up to do your reading, and some days, you know, you've probably experienced this, some days are just heavier days where you're like, man, i got so much to do, I'm busy, I don't feel like reading for whatever reason. And then you're like, okay, cool, loop one. All right, cool, yeah, I can do loop one. And you're like, oh, it's so long. Verse 69. Actually, maybe I'll start a little. That's not like an odd place to start. Who writes these notes for me? I have to get on my researcher. So I'll start in 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways." Later in Luke verse 19, or excuse me, chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus says, sorry, not Jesus says, Luke 19, 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was ready to appear Immediately, So Jesus is getting ready to prepare these people that think, okay, kingdom of God is coming right now, right? The Messiah is here. All of these promises are about to be actualized, are about to be realized. And then he prepares them for an elongated future. Because the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled, and because they will be fulfilled, Jesus points them out and into the future when the promises of Israel will be fulfilled in their completeness. That's because Israel is not replaced by the church, it's not diluted by the church, it's not folded in by the church. But also, so I think the, the thing to be careful of, there's also not some special salvation that is set aside either. Um, for, for, for when you have Jewish friends, you should be presenting the gospel and sharing the gospel with them. And you don't have to do it in a weird way that says, well, you guys are actually on the out, okay? And you guys got replaced by us. That's the bad news, but you can still come in through Jesus. That's not the story, right? The story is, hey, national Israel has a place in God's future. If you're living right now, you should repent, turn to Christ for your understanding and your salvation, because there's, like, temple worship's not going on, right? There are no bulls and goats being sacrificed. All of these things aren't happening now. Um, God desires that all should look on his son and be saved. That's the story for Israel right now. Now, when the, um, when the church is raptured, 
The believers will leave. There will be the tribulation period. And then there will be the millennial time. This is when we have the 140,000 uh, believing Jews who come in. They're preaching across the whole world. This is when God gathers up his kingdom. There's not a special way to salvation. It's a very consistent story all the way across the scripture. And it's why it's important that we read it clearly and accurately. And we're able to present ourselves as approved in handling the word rightly. We can't be sloppy. We can't just protect our camp. Just know what the scripture says. Forget your camp. Write your camp off. So, with the introduction done, let's read our passage. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It means exactly what it says. When you understand the scriptures with a consistent method of reading, the same way you would read any other kind of language or communication, it means exactly what it says. That's what's going to happen. In the fullness of time, this is part of what God is going to do as he gathers his church and then enters into the next age. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's not something new. Israel is not being replaced. All of the promises will be fulfilled. God will do all of these things on his timetable. And he's told us every word of it here. He's accommodated us in language that we can understand. The gospel is tight. The issues are all settled. So now we're free inside of these boundaries that God has living, given to us. We're free to live worshipfully. Live worshipfully. That's our whole job. It says, hey guys, don't worry about it. I've got the end covered. I did the beginning. You can see all of this. I've got you. Go magnify me with your lives. Be joyful people. Stop slumping around telling people how tired you are. I'm guilty of that. Stop doing that. Tell people how great God is. Because he is. The end is certain. God is sovereign. And his word to us is clear. So we should live in freedom and in worship because of all these things. Join me and let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for accommodating us. We're but dust. And sometimes we don't realize that and we should think of it more. We're but dust. And you've told us all that we need to know for life, for godliness, for, for reproof, correction, doctrine. I pray, God, that we'd be a people who would desire to rightly handle your word and not be afraid to do so, um, but be encouraged to lean in, to study your word, to understand what you've said, and to enjoy you, and that our reaction to you would be worship. So, God, I pray now, even as we as we close off and we, we join together to sing, God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and encourage our minds to be worship, worshipful 